Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Eccentric CEO Podcast. Now, when you walk down a grocery store or a supermarket, every product you see on the shelf has a fascinating global value chain behind it. Now, there's the sourcing, the manufacturing, packaging, transport, different types of retailers, financing, and uh, what else am I missing, Kyle? Your relationship with the people at the store level, you know, just getting something onto the store shelf uh, is really like kind of when the the real work begins because store owners are taking a big risk by putting your product on the shelf and they want to know that you as the owner, that you'll be a, in a partnership with that store to help it sell. Yeah. And so in today's episode, we look into this whole industry so that the next time you visit a grocery store, you have more of an x-ray business vision and see things you've never noticed before, right? And to educate us, we have a very special guest, Kyle Oglesby, and she's the president and owner at Daddy Sam's, which is an American grocery brand specializing in barbecue sauce. Thank you so much, Kyle, for being here. Thank you, Aman. I'm excited to be here and talk about this. So to begin with, Kyle, what's like the different product categorizations from the store's perspective that they have to deal with? There's like the produce and the uh, shelf stable and the gourmet and the commodity. Can you give us an overview? Yeah, sure. So it's interesting. I think the original name of you know what we now consider to be grocery stores was a supermarket. So lots of markets under one you know, one roof. And that's really still the same that's thing that's going on. So if you think about, you know, a hundred years ago, the way we shopped, we'd go to the green grocers, we'd go to the butcher, we'd go to the, you know, the bakery and pick up all yeah. of our items. And now we're kind of doing it all at one place. And we call it the grocery store, but you know, the old fashioned term for grocery is sort of that shelf stable stuff that's in the middle of the store. Right. Yeah. So that's what is called, and it's still called grocery. So when you go um, work with a grocery store, people who work in produce, they know primarily produce. They might know a little bit about grocery or deli or whatever, but it's still a bunch of different stores operating under one, you know, one brand. Mm -hmm. And so take the groceries in particular, do they have any subcategories for products? Well, so I know the most about, you know, like if you might say like the meat department, right? It might have the deli might be right next to, to meat, but still sort of two specific things. But the subcategories for sure inside of grocery are going to be the like crackers, right? Or condiments or cereals. So that would be the subcategory, but all of that stuff is still grocery. So grocery oh, okay. is a huge, a huge, there's a huge amount of SKUs and products that fall under grocery. Okay, so groceries, all the dry shelf products are pretty much the same category from the grocery store's perspective. And the subcategory is basically the SKU, like what kind of product is it? So, so it's a high level, but huge category. Um, and everything from jams to marmalades to peanut butters all fall under, under the same one big basket. 
Yeah, soda, cereal, condiments, uh, rice. And you can actually see usually on your receipt from the grocery store, you will see the different, I'm kind of looking to see if I've got a grocery receipt. I usually have one. You will see the different, uh, it's called, they're called rings, right? So okay. the cash register will ring up a grocery item and then it will ring up a meat item and then it will ring up um, a produce item, say. Mm. And so then at the end, the way your receipt is organized is inside those different categories. So all your produce will be together. It's not really how it's going through the, the you know, card barcode reader. It's I how see. your, the stuff is. So you can kind of go home and see like, oh, here, I bought seven meat products. I bought, you know, 12 produce products and I brought 20 grocery items. So that's kind of, so I would think that sort of, so grocery, the way the kind of conventional wisdom way that a grocery store is set up is sort yeah. of around the perimeter, right? Is like bakery, produce, meat, deli, uh, and possibly frozen, mm -hmm. right? Frozen is sometimes also in the middle of the store, but the middle of the store tends to be grocery, the real like, you know, yeah. bread and butter, if you will, of, of, of uh, although neither of those are grocery. I just mean like the real high volume is all considered grocery and it tends to be in the center of the store mm. the, the stuff on the shelves yeah yeah so shelf stable in any way yeah i suppose shelf stable in any way is all considered grocery mm. and shelf stable is there like a certain quantifiable like limit like what range the expiry needs to fall into to be classified as shelf stable so you have a classification as shelf stable and our different states have different rules governing, you know, sell by dates or use by dates. And it's all a little bit, it's a little bit complicated, but not as big of a deal for shelf stable. Cause it's, as they say, shelf stable, right? So like honey, for example, is shelf stable forever. Like it okay. just doesn't, you know, so long as the lid goes back on, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't go bad. Water also really, you know, so long as the lid stays on, it really won't go bad, but they are, customers have gotten used to seeing a sell by date or a use by date, or in the case of dairy, an expiry date or perhaps meat, you know? And so, but it does get confusing because there's not a, there's not a consistent phrase for all of that. And honestly, in my opinion, your nose is really the best, the best way to know if something's gone off, you know, but for the most part, shelf stable products are using old technology, you know, for the way that we used to store foods to make sure that it would stay okay for, you know, for longer term storage, right? Because you need to be careful with food. So like for Daddy Sam's, we package that in, in glass jars, right? Yeah. We package that at 190 degrees. Mm -hmm. So very, very hot when it goes into that jar. And so when the lid goes on, you know, and then yeah. it starts, the product starts to cool, it'll suck that lid down. It's got a terrifically stable environment and, and sanitized environment because of the heat. Yeah. And so really like, if you don't open that jar, it's going to stay fine for a really long time. And so it's really something that customers should know a little bit about like vinegars, salts, sugars. Those are all terrific preservatives. I see. Interesting. Yeah. And so on the demand side, let's take barbecue sauce, for example, what is like the typical distribution in the market? Like, is it more B2C or more B2B? 
I think it has an evolution. So barbecue okay. sauce is one of those interesting American products where a lot of people have a family recipe. That's certainly the way we started. Okay. So I think what happens is a lot of people think, you know, I really think I've got something here. I'm going to see, you know, what the market can bear here if I take this to market. So they'll start out at a farmer's market. So completely sort of, you know, B2C all the way, just selling directly to customers. Or maybe they, you know, get a website or they put it on Amazon, you know, straight up B2C. And that's a real common evolution for smaller shelf-stable products is to start out at farmer's markets try to get an understanding of demand, yeah. try to get an understanding of your customer, and then try to see, you know, like what sort of volume you can, number one, produce, and number one, like sell, right? Mm -hmm. So you want, you want those to kind of align and you want to understand, you know, what you can produce should a grocery store or a co-op or, a, you know, some other type of account or sales channel want to take you on. So I would say, most people start out B2C, but really where the money is, is B2B and they're, you know, or, or, you know, straight to distributors and they're going B2B. So wholesaling is really like where the money is because you have an efficiency of, of scale. When you, you know, create your product, you can, you know, produce more, you can produce more without, uh, you know, doing it yourself. So a lot of people maybe start out in a commercial kitchen, but mm -hmm. that's a tremendous amount of time that you are doing, you know, creating and bottling and labeling, packaging, distributing your product. And so what happens is it's, it, it can be unsustainable if you do start to grow because it's just too much time going into the kitchen and producing all by yourself. So I think that people start out B2C and then, you know, if they are going to go for it, they move into B2B straight mm -hmm. away. And then the consumption, is that also more uh, B2B, like restaurants and, you know, places that cook for other people? Or is that, you think, mainly uh, B2C? I think B2C. I think for, it, it, and again, it will sort of, as I say, grocery is such a huge category. Yeah. It will kind of depend, but there are a lot of different kinds of sales channels within the food service sales channels. So for okay. example, delis at co-ops and grocery stores might use it. Restaurants might use it. Um, stadiums might use it. Mm -hmm. Corporations with like cafeterias might use yeah. it. Yeah. And so it can be, you know, so it is, uh, Daddy Sam's is primarily retail. And so yeah. the food service channel, even though it seems like it might be an easy transition because we're already making the barbecue sauce. So why not just put it into those food service pails? It is an entirely new style of distribution. The, yeah. the players are all different. So people who know retail, they have retail connections. People mm -hmm. who know food service, they have food service connections. So it's not, it's not as easy as it sounds to kind of make that transition from retail to food service. And so a lot of people will, like what we've done at Daddy Sam's is we've really tried to stick with retail. It's what we know. It's what we're, you know, where we have the loyalty. And it's terrific for people to see it on the shelf. When you're yeah. in food service, it's not like anyone is, maybe a, a restaurant might say, proudly serving Daddy Sam's barbecue sauce. Yeah. Um, but it's not always, mm. it's not always yeah. going to be yeah. that way. Uh, and so I would say most people, you know, unless they own a restaurant, I think, I think for barbecue sauce in particular, it might be the other way around where someone owns a barbecue sauce. Like Famous Dave, he started out with a barbecue shack. I mean, he grew up loving barbecue, 
trying to know everything he could about barbecue. He started a barbecue shack and then, you know, started more restaurants and, and then started bottling his sauce. And that might be something that really does happen with barbecue where people start a restaurant first. Mm-hmm. We just had a family recipe and we thought, let's see if we can bottle this. And we, you know, and uh, we went into trying to get into retail straight away without having, without having a restaurant. But I will say that's one of the main questions I get asked is where's your restaurant? And I say, we don't, we don't have a restaurant. We're, yeah. we're just we're retail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that, the difference between going retail versus the food service is mainly what connections you have and what domain knowledge you have. Do you, do you think that's typical for most grocery brands where is it like, how likely is it that if you go to a restaurant and buy a product, then it has the same brand of, of an ingredient as the one that you buy at the grocery store in the same town? I think it's pretty unlikely unless you're like a Heinz. It used to be, you know, you would see a Heinz 57 ketchup bottle on every, you know, every restaurant table in America, basically. Every once in a while, you might see like one of those red squeeze bottles. But it was an amazing thing that Heinz did where they basically branded, like you couldn't go anywhere without seeing a Heinz bottle, you know. And so Heinz Mm -hmm. like owned the ketchup category. It's kind of changed a little bit now where, you know, you just don't have Heinz 57 ketchup bottles on every restaurant. But you still have them in the like the little packets. And so you're still seeing branding, but for barbecue sauce, I do think it's a little bit different because so many people have their own barbecue sauce recipes. I do think though, that there are like food service opportunities in maybe stadiums, right? Like Mm -hmm. where, like where they're serving brats or hot dogs, you know, and they like here, at least they'll have, you know, sort of, they've got relish, they've got onions, they've got a couple different types of mustard and then they have ketchup. And I always thought, man, how do I get Daddy Sam's barbecue sauce into here? But, but again, it's, it's a, it can be maybe some high volume and so some good revenue. But for what, what I sort of see is that unless you're a Heinz 57 or maybe that yellow barrel mustard Fleischmann's, yeah. I think it is, you're not really promoting your brand when you enter food service because people aren't going to, they're not going to necessarily know, and there won't be an iconic piece of packaging to go along with it, right? Um, so unless you have so much volume and such an iconic brand, I think food service, it can be great, but it, it, can, also, it can also maybe not do as much as one would hope to promote the brand and create brand awareness. Mm, so it's good for revenue, but not if you want to build a consumer brand on the back of your B2C sales. Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, different types of food will have different types of experiences, but that's been my experience so far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, is it like, let's say for another product, like let's say mayonnaise or, you know, you get butter or are those more similar for the ones that you use at restaurants and the ones you buy in the market? Or you just like two different supply chains in general, like for each product type? Yeah, two different supply chains. So like, oh, okay. for example, they don't, at a restaurant, they don't want like, you know, a case of, of Hellman's mayonnaise, you know, where they're like, so they get it in like a five gallon pail. And from a different company, like from a different manufacturer? Not, so the manufacturer... Possibly. It sort of depends on the way the co-packing works, right? So like if you, and I would guess that um, the answer is yes, when you get to really high volume, because the, pro, the kind of the, the issue that co-packers will face is, you know, 
what they do is they make the product and that's fine like because they make it in a giant kettle but filling filling into a, a bucket versus a, a retail jar that's two different styles of like the assembly line right okay so when you you when you create um something for retail the you you know cook up your product in the kettle and then it goes through a line and say it goes to like 20 filling nozzles that drop down into the glass jars they fill the jar and then those jars go down the line the lid gets put onto the jar um you know automatically there are like you know machines that will spin the lids on and then the the jars will go through the line and kind of spin through and get a label attached to them and then they will come off the line and they're either automatically placed into cases or people do that and then the cases get you know taped up and a lot number gets put on them so for the co-packer to then also create a line to fill up five or you know three and a half gallon pails I mean, they might be able to do like a couple at the end of the or at the beginning and just fill up a couple with the line. But that's then, you know, moving a different, entirely different size and weight yeah. and volume of material going into those pails. And so there are co-packers that are great for retail and then there are co-packers that are great for food service or, or bulk items. And whether or not your co-packer can do both well. Uh, you know, is is something to consider if you want to move into a different style, a different type of sales channel. Mm. But it's not always, you can't like, you can't always do both at the same time, right? Like yeah. I wouldn't really be able to easily make like, you know, a pallet of food service and a couple pallets of retail at the same time. It would be a lot of work for the co-packers to set up the line in the middle of, you know, yeah. having a kettle that's filled and ready to go. So it's more efficient to just run all retail at once, all food service at once. I see. Interesting. So it's not just about who you choose to sell to. It's also about who you can sell to at a given moment, right? And you don't have the capacity to have two different supply chains going on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're lucky if you, if you are, I mean, you can kind of try to start out small. Yeah. We um, did kind of have a few, like we'll run off maybe like four or five food service pails when we do runs just to sort of see, shop it around, see if we can start building the volume for that. I was kind of getting some interest right before uh, COVID really kind of shut everything down. Um, so I would like to sort of see if I can do that again. But again, it's one of those things where you're, when you're trying to scale, it, it's, it's, it's hard to understand demand, right? So the food yeah. service channel for us is like so brand new that I don't have a good understanding of demand or the market yet. I have a much better understanding of demand in the market for retail jars of Daddy Sam's barbecue sauce. And so it's always like, it may seem since you've got an established business that it's not a risk, Mm -hmm. But it is a risk. It is sort of a whole new style of doing business. And, you know, the, the need for a restaurant to always continue to be a, a repeat customer mm. is not as great as a grocery store or co-op that is like has lots of loyal fans and they're like, we want Daddy Sam's. Mm. But you won't, you know, you won't sort of have that like at a restaurant where they'll be like, oh, wait, have you changed the barbecue sauce that you use? I mean, it won't be as obvious to them because they're not seeing the branding. They're not yeah. comparing it to anything else. They're just, they're, get, they're buying their food and, you know, eating it off the plate without, you know, knowing necessarily what it is. And so restaurants are able to change, you know, if they're like, you know, this Daddy Sam's barbecue sauce isn't working out. I'm going to try Famous Dave's, you know, mm -hmm. it's not as big of a deal for them because there won't be 
really as much, if any, pushback from customers, which mm. if, if Daddy Sam's fell off the shelf, right, at a particular grocery store, some of our loyal fans might say, hey, what happened? Can you get Daddy Sam's back in here? Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Let's talk about the retail side, the grocery stores or the supermarkets. What's their business model, basically? And what's the system of stocking fees and minimum orders? Sure. So Daddy Sam sells primarily to distributors. And that's really what I want to do. So the great thing about distributors is they will take, you know, 60 cases of sauce, right? And then they have relationships with, you know, 500 stores or 200 stores or something. So they will warehouse the product for a short time and spread it out amongst, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of stores. So what we do is we sell by the case. I don't have, so our, our packages are currently 12 jars to a case. Okay. And so we are able to get 14 cases to a layer on a pallet. And so our customers will buy, you know, buy the layer and, and predict based on past sales. And then those distributors want to make sure they have plenty of inventory to satisfy all the stores who are also anticipating more sales. And then those stores want to have plenty of inventory to satisfy all of their customers. And that's how it, you know, just, it starts out huge and then just slowly filters down until it gets to the, you know, the customers taking it off the shelf and buying it and taking it home. There are, you know, real costs to trying out a new product, no matter what it is. So yeah. what you are doing, if you are like the grocery manager and I come up to you and I'm like, hey, why don't you put Daddy Sam's on your shelf? And, you yeah. know, and that grocery manager says, you know, I have these barbecue sauces and they're all selling really well. Why would I want to take one off? Right. Yeah. And, and slot you in. And so, you know, and then I will give my elevator pitch and say, well, you know, this is a terrific, authentic Texas style barbecue sauce. We're all natural. And, you know, and, you know, grocery managers have had, have heard pitches a lot, but they also really need to kind of think, okay, all natural, like no high fructose corn syrup. But then what they need to do is they need to like figure out, like there's not a lot of extra room. It's not like, oh, here's a yep. blank space that I can put your product in. Yep. And so that grocery manager has to think, which one isn't selling well or which one do I want to take the risk that I will upset some of my customers by, you know, this isn't going to be here anymore. And instead, Daddy Sam's is going to be here. And will you, Kyle, help me sell this, you know? And so... They, they do have slotting fees and I really try to avoid paying slotting fees because I think the incentive, uh, particularly for a small company like mine, is, is, is not right. Um, it's just sort of a, there's no return, right? It's not, it's not saying, it's just basically saying like you're buying out this old product and we're going to, you know, mark it way down and put it in the discount bin. But there are other styles of, of fees and they're really called like uh, promotional fees, right? So if you, what I'm trying to do is say, if you take me on, you know, I will do, here's, here's my promotional calendar. I will come yep. and demo. Here are the times that I will, you know, I will take, you know, $2 off a case so that you yep. can, you know, and so that's what I really try to do. Instead of slotting fees, I try to do like a promotional calendar. I try to really prove and showcase how much uh, support I will give to, you know, Daddy Sam's and to that store. I create recipes so that that store can also have some recipe ideas on cards if they want to and, you mm -hmm. know, put it next to our product. And so it, it can be a real trap because 
it might seem like if you get a giant account, right, at a, at, a, at a huge chain and they ask for a slotting fee or a free fill, a free fill is sort of like, you know, you give that store a case, but it's not really free to you because you have the cost of goods sold and then the distributor will also need to take the distributor cut because there's a cost to delivering that product to the store. And so yeah. you may be like giving all those cases away, but you already bought them when you, you know, through your cost of goods sold and then you have to pay your distributor. So it is a huge financial hit to do a free fill. And then that store just has like, Oh, Hey, this is just a hundred percent profit to me a hundred percent. And so the incentive isn't quite right there for the store either because they might just like, take the free case, sell it, and then put whatever, you know, whatever they knew was selling before back on the shelf. If I understand it properly, slotting fees is the fee you pay, right, to the grocery store to take something off the shelf and put yours on, right? And yeah. let's talk about some real number. Like, for example, at a typical grocery store, what's the typical number they might, like, they might throw at you? So I haven't actually experienced, I don't know that I actually know a number because I have like a range. always, yeah, it might be. For a typical product, let's say, not just exactly for your situation. Yeah, you know, maybe $50. I, I'm, I'm kind of guessing here because I have always said no to slotting fees. I've always said I will do, I will do a promotional, we can do a bill back, but I, I won't just, and so I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I know that I have done, I have done some free fills uh, through my distributor for a new store opening. Okay, so if there's like a chain of uh, stores, right? And they have a new store that they're opening yeah. and that store might request a free fill for the, and so I have said yes to that because then that's one case and then one distributor fee. And then we yeah. are on that, you know, we're on that shelf. But when, when there has been a situation of like, uh, we will take on your new flavor, for example, but can you free fill all 30 of our stores? Well, mm -hmm. then I have to say I have, and that's, you know, I, and I wonder too, if like that's a slotting fee that is maybe like the vernacular is a little bit different. I mean, people have talked about slotting fees and I've always just been unable to, to pay them because the return on investment is so uncertain that I've never actually gotten into numbers. But I would say a free fill for some a company like mine would be pretty expensive. Say I pre-filled 30 stores. Well, that would be, you know, 30. Yeah, that's like on you. Yeah. That's, That's like on the me. cost of the goods sold. Yeah. Right. The cost of the goods sold and I have to pay yeah. the distributor to deliver it. So, mm -hmm. you know, so that's the, whatever markup, you know, the distributor takes, I have to pay the distributor for that as well. And that's, you know, I mean, there is a cost to delivering product. Um, but so free fills for me, I have to be very, very uh, careful about falling into that trap. You don't want to become known as a company that will free fill because then people will start to expect it. And yeah. so I have chosen to do free fills one store at a time when we're already in that store. And it means that they've, they're opening a new, when we're already in that chain and yeah. they're opening a new store. So I want to like go ahead and support that store. But for, but that store is already supporting Daddy Sam's, right? Because we're already yeah. in the other, you know, the other stores in that chain. So then I'm okay with it. But when it's something where you have a 
huge upfront and no, no knowledge of what the return on investment will be, that's when I shy away. So I don't really know the answer to slotting fees. I've heard, I do hear people talk about it and, and nobody seems to be very, nobody seems to be very happy about paying them. So I'm sorry, Aman. I don't know the numbers very well. Mm-hmm. Do distributors also have to pay slotting fees? Or, and, and of course, that would be covered under your cut, right? It had the cut that you have to give them. But how does their relationship with the grocery stores work? Um, it, it can really vary chain to chain. So if, it is a, if it's an independent chain or a co-op, those distributors can have much better relationships with the grocery managers and try to tailor the products that they get to them to match that particular store's customer base better. If you have a store with less autonomy and we're for the grocery managers, right? Where they don't get to choose as well. It's sort of a top down style of buying rather than a store by store uh, level of buying. Then it, it can be harder for distributors to act as a sales force and try to get their products into that particular chain. So it's again, kind of a, kind of a, it depends lots of, um, if you, the more independent of stores or co-ops, the better that relationship can be between the distributor. Um, because sometimes stores, they don't really, you know, they're just buying, you know, they're just sort of filling out orders, right? They're like, yep, we want a whole bunch of this and this and this, and nope, we don't want to try it. We know these things sell. So it can really depend on, I would say it can be great if you have an independent grocery chain with lots of power for those grocery managers to make decisions. Mm-hmm. So if you had to get into a huge retailer like Target or you know, Whole Foods or something like that, that's a totally different process by which they make these decisions. And of course, these these chains do, do, do some tests, right? I've heard of them doing tests with like say 10 stores or five stores or something like that. How do those decisions get made how does that deal work compared to if you had to just go to them directly? Yeah, I think sometimes it's the, it's, you know, the luck of the day. You might go into Costco, right? And with your product and say, hey, who can I talk to? I want to sell this here. And if the, if the person who's, you know, who hears your pitch is, is, you know, intrigued, you know, that person might, might fight for you and take you, you know, you know, and send your name up to, the decision maker, right? But like places like Target and Whole Foods, I believe that Whole Foods is still operating on a regional buying pattern. So there are, I think like nine or 10 different regions that Whole Foods will give Okay. So those that, you know, that region, some buying power. Yeah. So Daddy Sam's is in Whole Foods, um, not nationally though, right? So we're in Whole Foods in Northern California. We have a distributor in, in San Francisco who uh, get, got us into Whole Foods there. We have a distributor in Atlanta, Georgia, who got us into Whole Foods there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those are two different regions though from here in the Twin Cities. Um, and so there is still autonomy regionally for Whole Foods. And so they will kind of look at what that region maybe wants and try to understand the demand there. And then of course, Whole Foods has its own list of ingredients that are not allowed. And that is, that is a national list, right? So you can't be, you can't have something and sell in the Southeast region and then have it 
you know, I mean, Whole Foods just has a national list of ingredients that are not allowed, but within the different uh, American buying regions, the, the category managers, right? So, you know, so that to bring, kind of go back to the earlier point of subcategories, there are category managers, right? So if you're in charge of grocery, right, there's still going to be people who are specializing, right? So like the categories might be as broad as, you know, just, you know, cereal and crackers or condiments or, you know, baked goods. And so then those category managers at a Whole Foods, for example, will kind of look at it and make a decision. Um, and Whole Foods will most likely want to deal with a distributor versus direct shipping because it's easier to manage, you know, and then you don't have to warehouse as much. Target also has some regional uh, regional rollouts or some regional styles of doing business. And so like, if I were to try to approach target right now, I don't think a company as small as daddy Sam's could handle a national mm. rollout unless target were able to kind of help financially. Right. But so target does have regional rollouts. And so one thing is nice for target is that target can kind of test and see how well a product does in a smaller area. So Target isn't taking as big of a risk by saying like, we're putting this in every store in the country. And the you know vendor isn't taking as big of a risk by trying to create as much inventory that would be necessary for every store in the country. So regional rollouts can be really effective for everybody. But again, every time someone decides to take on a new product, it does kind of mean like they're either expanding their store and that's a lot of money or they're taking somebody else off the shelf. And that's not always easy. Mm, so it sounds like the decision process for a small store uh, that's in more independent or whether it's a small whole food store, it's not that different for them, right? From what you described. I don't, yeah, I don't think it's all that different. Really, everybody is concerned with the bottom line, honestly. Yeah. The people like barbecue sauce tends to be a slow moving product, right? It's not going to, it's not going to sell as fast as, you know, milk or chips or, yeah. you know, soda. It's just, it's just not. And so the expectations for barbecue sauce, you know, are not going to, you know, you're not going to expect the same kind of volume. So yeah. the grocery managers know that and will adjust, but you also don't want to have, you want to be able to, Make sure your customers are happy and they're getting what they want, but you also don't want something that sits on the shelf for a year. Uh, and so even though hot sauces and barbecue sauces can sit on the shelf for a long time, mm -hmm. nobody wants that because the opportunity cost is so high. Uh, you know, and so grocery store managers are always trying to figure out like, how can I maximize the you know, yeah. dollar value of this shelf? And Customer relationships and the relationship with the vendor goes a long way. Before COVID, I, I demoed every Friday night, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday, and Monday nights. Um, and then I would do even more during the holidays. So that was great for me because I'm able to sell a lot of product and the grocery managers like it because they sell a lot of product yeah. and they know I'm here to support the product. I'm not just going to say like, here, buy this, and then I'm, I'm out of here. You know, you sell it. So I mean, like, because it's no good to anybody if it sits on the shelf. Mm. And what about the e-commerce marketplaces and if you want to sell through Amazon and other websites? How does that supply chain work? 
Yeah, so that can be that can be very cool because the margins can be better, yeah. but it also does require learning. You need to set up an e-commerce website. You need to kind of understand about shipping and logistics and how does that work. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a product that's in glass, and so I needed to really spend some time to figure out how can I package this that best protects my glass? And I don't, cause it doesn't do me any good if my product arrives broken at a customer's yeah. house. Like that's, yeah. I don't want that. The customer definitely doesn't want it. And you know, it, there's, there's, you know, that's just a bummer for everybody. Uh, and so I needed to spend some time to kind of understand how much protection, right? Like a glass jar would need, but then also like, how do I maximize the profits there too? Cause I can't, you know, I can't like, to send like one jar of product, you know, it's like what six inches tall and three inches wide, you know, and I, but I can't put it in a box that's this big, you know, that's yeah. like, you know, two feet long. So you need to kind of do some tests. And so there is a lot of learning that goes into making sure your product is protected uh, and maximizes the efficiency of shipping it. So, and then, you know, once the volume, everything, you know, I mean, you can make money two ways, right? Margin and volume. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, once you get to the volume side of things and you can outsource that to people who understand shipping so much better than you could as an individual trying to understand all of it, you know, that can be a really big help in helping you scale up and reach a better volume. So I'm going to be doing that soon, outsourcing the shipments that come in through the Daddy Sam's website will be handled by somebody else, hopefully in the next two months, because Number one, they know more about how to do it. They're better at it than I am. Number two, they have the time to do it. For me, it's a big sort of, I've got to change gears. I've got to get into shipping mode. I go to the warehouse, I you know package everything up. And so not a terribly efficient use of my time. And so that's really what ends up happening when you start scaling up is one, you know, founders really need to have that kind of hard conversation with themselves or themselves and their partner is like, what is the most efficient use of my time? Maybe I love doing this one thing, but it is not an efficient use of my time. And so then that can be kind of sad, but then also maybe like, here's this thing I don't like, and it's not an efficient use of my time. How do I solve this problem? And I really started to learn that when I started to try to figure out e-commerce stuff, because of course, certainly during the pandemic, e-commerce has been huge. I was not really prepared for it. I didn't have a lot of sales channels in place to deal with it. And I decided to prioritize my distributors over everybody else because I needed to make sure they were happy and they got product. So Daddy mm -hmm. Sam's is sold on Amazon, but I was not able to keep as much supply in Amazon as I wanted to because there was a glass shortage and I needed to really prioritize customers. And my biggest customers are the distributors. So that's where I really decided to spend my energy and focus was making sure that my distributors had all of their orders fulfilled. And it's too bad because I did let down some of my, uh, I did let down some of the direct, you know, customers who were trying to buy through the Daddy Sam's website. And I did let down Amazon customers for sure. Um, but I just, uh, I just needed to really focus and prioritize the biggest customers for Daddy Sam's, which is, you know, for Daddy Sam's, it's business to business. It's business to distribute. It's Daddy Sam's to distributors. Yeah. But I would say e-commerce, you know, I'm learning a lot about that and there's huge opportunities there. And so it is very exciting, but I would say there are professionals out there who know how to do that and who can help you. And that was what 
I have decided to do is to try to start working with them so that I don't take, so that I can reap some of the rewards, but I don't need to learn quite as much and spend so much time handling shipping or figuring out, you know, what is the best carrier, who will protect my, you know, packages the best. So e-commerce sounds quite easy. Like what's the big deal? You're just selling your product, but everything has details. Every single decision has a tremendous amount of details that need to be ironed out before you go ahead and do that. And so I have not tried to promote the Daddy Sam's website very much. Um, But in the next two months, when I do kind of get some e-commerce things under control, I am going to start promoting it more because I think that it's going to be, I think that it's going to be just just better and better as, uh, you know, I get better at the e-commerce part of it and I outsource to professionals, the shipping and logistics part of it. But also I think people have just really gotten accustomed to, you know, uh, shopping online and it's not as intimidating and it's not as like, Ugh, what if I don't like it? What if I don't want it? Yeah. What if I don't, you know? And so it's not as big of a deal for shoppers to go ahead and try that. The pandemic for sure cemented online buying as a daily part of life for American shoppers. And so I think it's just only going to continue, even though I do think the majority of food will still be bought at, at the store level. I think, mm-hmm. I don't think that that's going to change because People still do like to kind of look at it. Yeah. They still want to pick up the thing, look at it, read the little story, see the nutritional yeah. panel, all of which you can do online. But th- that tactile sensation is a big deal for people yeah. still. And so I think that's still going to be the, the biggest thing. But I am excited for e-commerce. And I think, I think it's going to be great for Daddy Sam's. I, I, uh, I certainly hope it will be. But again, lots to learn when you try out a new sales channel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so let's move, to, move into the actual cost breakdown, you know, and the manufacturing and the transport value chain, the supply chain of a product. And uh, let me put it this way. If I picked up a jar of Daddy Sam's sauce at a Whole Foods in Northern California, in San Francisco, let's say, um, can you give me the breakdown ratio wise, how much of that markup price is going to different people along the value chain? Oh yeah, sure. So what we do, you know, is we will make our product, right? And so we have to have, we got to buy the ingredients. Yeah. We got to buy the glass jar. We got to buy the lid. Uh, We need to buy the tamper-proof sleeve uh, and we need to buy and create the label, right? So the raw product uh, prices are where we start. And then we, you know, have a co-packer who manufactures our product, right? So all of that then becomes, and then shipping it to my warehouse, right? So all of that then becomes cost of goods sold. So that is like our cost of goods sold, right? Is our lid, our label, our tamper sleeve, our ingredients, our jar, the making and packaging of the product and then shipping it to the warehouse. And then we have a good, you know, baseline number to understand like how do we sell it on so then i will build into the price that i sell to a distributor you know we'll try to get about a 50 percent margin Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is not that we're getting 50 percent margin every time but you need to build into that your promotions right so like i'm going to take you know two or three dollars off a case or 15 percent off a case for the fourth of july right so then there's all sorts of promotions that i will do throughout the year that then come out of that 50 percent margin so like over the year i might end up at more of like a 35 percent margin right Mm -hmm. so you can't you need to sort of 
go for it when you do your margin yeah. so that incidentals, spoilage, something happens to the truck and everything falls over and breaks, you know, just like you just need to make sure that you're protecting yourself and making sure that you're going to be a good partner to those stores, right? Because all those stores are going to want promotions. Um, mm-hmm. They don't want to just sell it at full price all year round. That's, that's no good for, for them or for, for me really, because customers will really look for those sales tags and then they'll give it a shot if there's a, if it's on sale. So, so I will build in a 50% margin. I will sell that on to the, to the distributor um, and say here and give the distributor the promotional calendar, right? So the distributor then knows, okay, great. Here are the times that we can tell the stores it's going to be on sale so they can pass that on. And you can also buy into the distributor's promotional yeah. schemes, you know, and do that. That can be kind of expensive and they don't necessarily, the stores don't necessarily need to participate. And so, you know, you may just be giving the stores a killer deal and they're still selling it at full retail. So I just try to make sure that I'm, you know, build into my price, the promotional calendar, the distributors then have that information. They sell on to the stores. The distributors will take a 30% margin. Mm. Um, usually, usually about a 30% margin. And then the stores will take a 30% margin, probably on shelf stable stuff that has a slower, yeah. uh, you know, like barbecue sauce or hot sauce, it might be anywhere from 25 to 45% gross margin, mm-hmm. right? But then when you get down to like milk, yeah. like it's just flying off the shelf, right? That might be a 10%, you know, margin or something where it's not, you know, and I don't know that milk ever even goes on sale. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, it's just, yeah. it's just always, it is what it is, you know? And produce, again, very small margins. So the store will have its own margin schedule inside of its, you know, all the, like going back to all those different stores that we were talking about inside of a grocery store. Produce will tend to have very small margins. The probably where the margins vary the most is inside of grocery, right? Yeah. Like cereal, I would guess, I don't know, but cereal probably flies off the shelf, so not huge margins. Mm. So the slower moving products are gonna have the bigger margins and the faster you know, margins, the things that turn more often are gonna have you know, smaller margins. Um, and so uh, you can uh, kind of backtrack maybe a, a, a product by sort of taking off you know, 30% at the store, 30% at the distributor and, you know, 40 to 50% at the um, manufacturer level. But that's, so that kind of can show you how cheap raw ingredients still are. It's pretty amazing. But, (laughs) but, you know, but again, those raw ingredients are being made on a huge, huge scale, right? Like sugar, for example, is just made like by the, you know, metric ton probably, I don't know, but I mean, they're just making it all the time. And so it's, you know, sugar can be a, a volatile uh, item in the marketplace, but raw ingredients are being made on a huge scale versus, you know, artisanal pro- products like a baked bread or a, you know, barbecue sauce. Um, yeah, but so that's kind of the way, that's kind of the way everything go, you know, you, you have to build into your price the promotions and the yeah, chance that something will go wrong and you know and then also you know make sure that you're making money yeah that makes sense because if you have a slow moving product like you said there's so much diff- there's so much of a time lag between 
when you ship it versus when you get money because when it got sold uh that you have to, to, to just to stay in business along that time you need to have that margin that makes up for that slowness right and you have a fast moving product you get that money that cash flow also much quickly so you can you have more certainty so it's about just again mitigating the risk more than it's uh, more than anything else right right and understanding your cash flow yeah. right i mean that's like that's like you know that is the thing that everybody needs to handle kind of all the time, particularly when you're starting out and you don't have very good cash flow. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so that can be with like selling on Amazon, for example, very low margin. Nobody makes money selling on Amazon, but Amazon will put money into your bank account every two weeks. And so, you know, so long as you are selling product, you will get some cash every, you know, couple of weeks. But yeah. Amazon takes such a high, it's just Amazon takes like, so much of the of of each uh i mean probably like 70 percent of each sale so it's not like it's not like people make money by selling on amazon it's kind mm -hmm. of a nice way to test demand in certain markets and it's a nice yeah. way to kind of help your cash flow right because you are getting money every two weeks if you're if you're selling something right i mean obviously you need to be selling but it can help in uh kind of mitigate your other types of accounts like right like i sell to distributors and my terms for the most part are 30 days net so you know i'm waiting 30 most people just pay like at 30 days or 45 days you know and so for for me it was kind of great to get into amazon to sort of test out how it would do across the country but also to have you know even if it's only 200 dollars, you know i got a little bit of money into my account yeah, and yeah. so to just to help you know with with cash flow uh because when you're small, you're kind of at the mercy of, of other people's terms. It's not yeah. like you just don't have a lot of leverage on that front. And so, you know, and, and what are you going to do? Not, not, you know, I mean, you just got to wait for the check to come in the mail. Most yeah. of, you know, most of the time people want to pay within terms because it's just better for everybody. But, you know, yeah. sometimes people are unlucky and you're always risking it. You're always sending off your stuff without money, you know? So like, you know, you're always, kind, it always feels kind of like a risk. Um, and so, and even, you know, selling into Amazon. I mean, the one th thing that's kind of great if you can get some e-commerce going is that the money comes in first, right? Yeah. And then you send out. So that's kind of, that's kind of great. Mm. And so how do you, how do you negotiate terms with Amazon if you do at all? Because I mean, you do have, you do have a market price, like what, what price you want to sell it at on Amazon, right? And you can choose that, I assume. So like, how does Amazon decide, you know, how much of a margin it can take? Amazon has its fee schedule basically. Okay. And so you just sort of fit into that. Uh, and then you can, I think, uh, there is just a certain amount that Amazon takes that is flat. And that is based on, you know, the kind of cubic dimensions of your product and how expensive it's going to be to ship it out. And then there's a sliding scale, which is called the referral fee. And yeah. that is some kind of algorithm that Amazon comes up with. And then you, you know, Daddy Sam's is sold on Amazon Prime, but like Daddy Sam's bears the cost of shipping it. It's not yeah. like Amazon doesn't ship that for us, you know, I mean, so Daddy Sam's pays the shipping. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's very expensive to work with Amazon and you don't have a relationship with Amazon. It, yeah, there's no yeah. one to talk to. There's no yeah. one to talk to at Amazon. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're 
basically at the mercy of Amazon. And it's a capricious organization where, you know, the rules and even the interface changes a lot. So you're kind of always having to figure out what's going on with Amazon. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, but you don't get to, at least maybe when you're a giant, I mean, maybe if you're Nabisco, you can negotiate with Amazon. I don't know, but a small company like mine, uh, I cannot, I don't have any negotiating power with Amazon at all. There's a couple, there's a, a bunch of different fees okay. is the way. So it's, so, I mean, I might like look at it and be like, wow, this was 70%, but it's not like Amazon is saying we're taking a 70% margin. Oh, all right. Okay. It's like, here's all the money you had to pay to ship it in. Here's the money you had to pay to ship it out. Here's the referral fee. Here's the flat rate fee. Here's the storage fee. So it's all just a whole bunch of fees that stack up. That means that, you know, it's very difficult to make money at Amazon. Right. So if you were shipping a jar of caviar, in a small bottle, some of those fees will be lower for you, right? Uh, but it's gonna sell for several hundred dollars. How does Amazon know like, okay, you're selling barbecue sauce, let's say it's like $10 a jar, for example, or like a jar of caviar, which is a small, even smaller packaging, but much more high value item inside it that retails for much higher do the fees work in a way that the KVR will also give them, give Amazon a better margin? Yeah. The referral fee is, okay. does have an algorithm based on the selling price of the product. Oh, okay. And then there's the, the flat fee that's based on the amount of space that you take up and, uh, and the shipping cost, you know, for it. So there's sort of two fees that are the biggest, the biggest hits, but then also that person sending in the caviar has to pay for the caviar, yeah. has to pay for the um, packaging it up, has to pay to ship it in. Um, and then, you know, and then inside those selling fees, you're paying for it to get shipped out as well. And so it's, uh, it's not a, it's not like one algorithm, it's yeah. several yeah. and cents and flat fees and then the shipping costs and then your own cost of goods sold, you know? And so, and you, we talked about high fructose corn syrup, uh, right? As a, it's kind of a very demonized ingredient in the health space where every health uh, expert or nutritionist talks about why you shouldn't consume any product with it. What's the deal from a business side, right? If you were to use high fructose corn syrup in the product instead of whatever sugar or molasses you use, how much of a difference would it make to the corn mix that we just uh, talked about just now? So corn is heavily subsidized in the United States, okay. heavily, heavily subsidized. And so it's a stable price for a sweetener uh, is, is corn syrup versus sugar. Sugar is much uh, less of a stable priced commodity than corn syrups are. Back in the day when meat was so kind of rough and, and you know, people were trying to tenderize it, Vinegars and sugars really helped to break down those carbon chains and help to tenderize meat. And so we developed a kind of a sweetness or a heavily vinegary flavor for our barbecue sauces. And so now, you know, we kind of expect a sweetness for the most part to barbecue sauce. Mm -hmm. And so corn syrups are a very cheap way to have that sweetness, but they're not going to help. And they're not going to help tenderize the meat, which it's not as big of a deal now. Meat is not as tough as it used to be, but it also, corn syrups won't glaze. 
not the same way that a sugar will. So it won't caramelize the same way, mm. you know, that, a, that a, a molasses, a honey, a sugar will kind of get that nice, you know, caramelization glaze on the, on the top. And so, and, you know, whether or not, you know, nutrition and politics aside, I kind of like a real, I like a real nice glaze on stuff when I do ribs or, you know, I like, I like those kind of burnt ends with a nice caramelization. Um, and you just don't really get that with corn syrup, but you do get the sweetness. And so for people who maybe just love barbecue sauce and they're not as concerned about the ingredients or about the caramelization, the glazing, those are fine. But, but again, if you are using corn products, it is a heavily subsidized crop in the United States. And so it's kind of great for those companies because they have a very stable price for sugar and it's cheap. And so how much cheaper, uh, lot, for example, how much cheaper corn syrup versus yeah. sugar. Oh, I'm So I'm not familiar with how, what, if I were to look at barbecue sauce, right. A barbecue yeah. sauce that had a corn syrup versus daddy Sam's it's, it's, you know, 25 to 30% the cost of, mm. of, of daddy Sam's. Just with that uh, one change. I wouldn't say just that one change, but because the, because corn syrups can be so much cheaper, you could probably scale up faster. A lot of, also we are one of the few barbecue sauces that have stuck it out in glass. Glass is more expensive, mm. but just better for the product. We have so much vinegar in there that a plastic bottle is not good for the product, but there are a lot of barbecue sauces that have maybe less vinegar and corn syrups. And so they're also packaging in plastic, which is, you know, lighter weight, but so I know not that one change, but I would say Daddy Sam's is still a margin priced product and products that are, you know, using corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup for its sweetener are in the commodity section or, you know, a style mm. of pricing. And so, no, definitely not just that. So I don't really, I've never looked into how much corn syrups cost, but I, I do know that corn is the most subsidized crop in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know that it's, you know, even if you, even if you buy ears of corn at the grocery store, you know, in, in high season, you know, what, 12 ears of, of, of sweet corn will be like three bucks, you know? So very, very, corn is incredibly cheap and it, plentiful. We grow it in 48 states in the United States, but also it's the most subsidized crop. So it's, yeah, but I don't know how much I have no, mm -hmm. I've never looked into uh, the cost of corn syrups. You also mentioned gourmet priced or margin priced products versus the commodity priced product. Can you elaborate a little on what that means? Uh, is, this, is, is that just high volume, low margin, or there's something else to the pricing strategy for these two categories? I think that there may be some brands that are able to have it both ways, but I think it's very difficult to sell, you know, to be a, a high volume and a high margin product I, for the pricing, you know? So I think that uh, when, when you start out, you sort of have to be a margin-based product. You know, you need to price it kind of with higher margins because you're so small and your, your costs are so much more than a, you know, than a, a food, somebody that's, you know, got their own factory or is making, you know, a thousand bottles a day and you're making a thousand bottles a month. So I think what that's kind of the evolution of a product where you start out as a gourmet or specialty item because there's just not, and it, there's a rarity to it, right? There's a scarcity to it. Like I'm not in, I'm not a national brand yet, you know? So my product is, is, is scarcer than, you know, uh, 
whatever the biggest barbecue sauce is out there, which, you know, I don't, is that Sweet Baby Ray's? I mean, there are, it's, that one's huge here in um, Minnesota. And so it's kind of, I would say it follows sort of those basic laws of economics where there's, yeah. you know, the scarcity, you know, commands higher pricing. Mm -hmm. And so as you grow, as you scale, you are able to create savings for your product by, you know, by the efficiency of scale, right? Running more at the same time, making the labor more efficient, making the packaging more efficient. And then you're able to, you know, get into more stores, grow. And so you want to, it's always that kind of sweet spot, right? Like where yeah. does the balance find itself, right? Like if I sell this many at this price, or do I sell this many at this price? You know, where is my, you know, where is that, you know, sweet spot of highest profit going to be? And so I think most small companies, unless they've got some like deep pockets, they're going to start out at a higher price, uh, you know, because they just don't have efficiency of scale yet. But as you grow, then you're able to become more of a margin or excuse me, a volume based business. And you start making more money because you've just got more volume. And so you don't need to have, you know, your prices don't need to be quite as high. I think the most important thing for brands though, is to stay true to yourself, right? So don't try to make, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be like a family recipe, keep it like the family recipe and don't try mm -hmm. to, don't try to, don't try to find ways for savings in your ingredients. Like if, you know, for us, you know, corn syrups didn't even exist when my family was making barbecue sauce back in the day. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about a little how the packaging choices can, you know, from, from what I gathered, they can drastically change the margins you're operating at? Yeah. So there's a couple different styles of uh, lids, right? So there's a continuous thread lid uh, and there is a lug, a lug lid. And those are also, I think most plastic has a continuous thread style lid. So that's just the kind of classic old fashioned style lid with this the thread that winds down. And then those lug lids are the ones that kind of maybe have like a quarter turn and they, they stop. And I don't yeah. think you really have that on plastic. And so that's part of the issue of what kind of capabilities does the co-packer have, right? Like can that co-packers line, so the sort of like assembly line part where the bottles kind of go down, can that co-packers line do both styles of lid or, you know, what kind of, you know, capability, I guess, does the co-packer have? Yeah. And then also, for plastic, you know, can you hot fill that, that plastic, you know, or do you have to wait and have it cool down? So if you have to, if that plastic can't take a high temperature, then you have to like wait for the product to cool down, which just means yeah. that's time. That's time yeah, yeah. for it to be sitting in the kettle and cooling down. And so again, huge opportunity cost. And so there are so many considerations really you know, it, it will ultimately come down to what package will best support your brand and your brand promise and your brand flavor, right? Like I like, you know, lots of products that come in, in plastic that I'm sort of glad aren't in glass anymore, right? Like yeah. if back in the day when you'd buy, you know, like a thing of mayonnaise, right? It was always in glass and now it's almost always in plastic, Yeah. Um, you know, and yet, you know, 
they're, they're big. Jars of mayonnaise are big. And so like, if you drop that, that's a bummer. Like there's broken glass and mayonnaise everywhere. So sometimes, you know, it it will make sense to be in, in plastic or in some other non-glass container. It, It just, I think the most important thing about it is to really make sure that your packaging supports your own product and your own product's promise. We have kind of an old-fashioned family-style vibe, and so glass is, is right for us. I couldn't get, you know, the same kind of longevity out of a plastic bottle, although it would be lighter weight and it wouldn't break, but it still means that, like, it won't last as long. And so then that comes into cash flow, right? Like, how am I going to – if this inventory is only good for nine months versus 18 months, well, you know, then I can't make as much right? Because I don't know how fast it's going to turn. So packaging is, is a real huge consideration. And now that we have so many different options in packaging, it can be, it can be confusing, but it's, I think, I think it's just really vital that for consumer packaged goods, at least just really thinking about how do you package it to really best communicate what your brand stands for? Mm. I see. So the price difference is actually less important than the actual, uh, the non-monetary reasons why you're packaging it that way. Well, for me, yes. But also, you know, like there are all those hidden costs and considerations, right? Yeah. So for us, like, you know, we have what a two year date on daddy Sam's right now. And, you know, if we were to put it in a plastic, we would get, we would have to let it cool. Maybe there's something out there that where we could hot fill it. I'm, 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 I'm hearing that there are hot fill plastic uh, right now, but I haven't, I haven't researched it, but then, you know, I would need to run it more often, right? Because if I have a two year date on it versus a one year date, oh, okay. I can run probably twice as much. And then I only ship it once to my warehouse. So there are always ripple effects to every decision that you make, even when it comes down to packaging. And so it, it, it might seem like it's a good financial decision at the very top level, right? Like, oh, okay, this plastic is cheaper. But then again, I wouldn't get the same kind of longevity out of it. I would have to run it more often, don't get the same efficiency of scale, have to ship it more often. So lots of different considerations that will go into it. So if I really run down the chain, like it might seem like quite quickly on the top, yes, plastic, it'll be cheaper. But when I do the math and kind of put it into a spreadsheet, it, it, for us, it's, it's not cheaper. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if it reduces the shelf for it, shelf life by that much like by 50 percent uh that has huge costs on the overall business more than just the breakdown of you know how much it costs you a bottle right yeah because that's the other kind of like thing that people don't you know why would they think about i mean you're storing all this stuff i mean i'm paying you know i have a warehouse i store all of it you know and i pay to have a truck, pick it up. I mean, I'm paying to ship it, you know, so there are a lot of costs that go into, you know, getting something to the store. And so, you know, for us, glass, that's the other thing too. You do get better rates on your shipping uh, when your product is incredibly dense, 
right? Mm. So like for shipping rates, I mean, shipping is pretty expensive no matter what, but like the custom, the, the shipping companies are going to want to ship, you know, a higher density product that, you know, take, you know, that they're, you know, cause they charge by weight, right? Yeah. So for them, like if they're charging for a thousand pounds and it's all just like sitting on one pallet, awesome. But if you're shipping a thousand pounds of cotton balls, well, that like takes up the entire, you know, space yeah. in the truck. So, you know, so there is, you know, there, and I haven't done the math on that to figure out like, would it be, you know, is it better for us on the shipping front? Because I really do want to stay in glass, but there are so many hidden considerations that, you know, until you really sort of dial in, you wouldn't really think about like how much space it's going to take up on the truck is, you know, is directly related to how much it's going to, you know, cost you. And so there are these density calculators uh, that freight and shipping companies use to understand the weight, you know, and how much it's going to take up inside the back of the truck. Mm. How much space, how much space it's, you know, that weight. So like, yeah, cause I mean a thousand pounds of cotton balls versus a thousand pounds of barbecue sauce. Well, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you could ship. Yeah. It just doesn't even come close. And so the last, before we wrap this up, what is the business relationship with co-packers? Are they your customers or are they your vendors? Vendors. Mm, I see. So you yeah. pay them to manufacture yep. your product and yep. then send it back to you and then you distribute it. You pay, you, you sell it to the distributors. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So the distributors are the customers and the co-packers are the vendors. Interesting. Are there also cases where co-packers can distribute your product directly? They're like an outsourced, like you outsource the, the manufacturing in a way with your recipe and you collect like a royalty check or whatever. You just said the, you just do the business deals and they just take care of the product on their own afterwards. Yeah. Some people will, will do that. So say, say I wanted to like, you know, retire and I was done running daddy Sam's, yeah. uh, maybe one of my distributors would want to buy the recipe or put together a royalty deal you know, mm. or maybe the co-packer would want to keep doing it. So it just sort of depends on the way you want to set up the deal. Um, but there are, are plenty of distributors who have ended up buying, you know, a product that they carry when that, when that maker decided to, you know, that to call it quits or for whatever yeah. reason, didn't want to do it anymore. And so you'll see, you know, maybe distributed by, you know, and then it's like, you know, whatever the distributor is, instead of like a person's name, instead of like the, the company, like Daddy Sam's, right? So maybe like if there was somebody else who bought it, it'd be like, you know, Daddy Sam's distributed by, you know, whoever mm -hmm. the distributor is that bought it. Yeah. Mm. So the big, but for the most, yeah, I think for the most part, people just sort of, you know, if they get like Stubbs barbecue, for example, classic barbecue spot in Texas, in Austin. And, you know, I think he started out as a restaurant. There is a, there's a, there's a Stubbs right in downtown Austin that I've been to many, many times. And, you know, his barbecue sauce is on the grocery store shelves, but I think McCormick and Schmidt just bought, or McCormick's, excuse me, McCormick's Spices just bought mm -hmm. that. So, I mean, you know, once you do get to be kind of big, maybe a bigger company, you know, will buy you and continue to then, you know, own the recipe and own the brand and then, you know, continue to sell because that's, you know, the whole thing comes down to the efficiency of scale, really, you know? Yeah. And so if a giant company can buy you and create your product at a much reduced, you know, 
price structure because it has buying power and and knowledge and means you know then then you know it can be a a, a terrific investment for that larger company to not try to like reinvent the wheel and say like, I want to get into the barbecue sauce business. Oh wait, Stubbs is for sale. I'm going to buy Stubbs, a well-known brand that people love. Uh, and like, we already have market saturation then. So it's always, it's, you know, those kinds of things always just come down to the way the deal gets set up. I would think that smaller companies maybe get bought by distributors because they already sort of have an understanding of the, um, I'm kind of guessing here, but you know, they have an understanding of, of the customer base. But then when you become giant, like Stubbs did, you know, an even bigger company, like, you know, McCormick Spices might, might buy you. What is the biggest thing that you need to figure out right now that's, that takes up most of your headspace? <laughs> Access to capital. <laughs> it definitely like, I'm trying to uh, always, I've kind of got a cash flow management issue and so i'm always kind of trying to figure out cash flow that's definitely the hardest part for me and trying to figure out how to scale when i don't have much access to capital is is hard um and so i would say it's that's and that's a pretty classic problem i think for any small business trying to scale is how do i get the bank to take a risk on me to loan me some money so that i can get to the next level I don't know that that takes up the majority of my, of my time, but it is probably the thing that is my biggest hurdle right now as I try to scale is how do I get access to capital? How do I make my business plan look good so I can get it? Mm -hmm. And so when you take, talk about access to capital, is it mainly for marketing and promotion or is it mainly for just fulfilling orders and keeping the supply going and paying your co-packers? Right now it is for, yeah, inventory and, and keeping the supply going. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that ultimately it will go more into marketing if I am able to scale up because we don't okay. spend a lot of money right now on marketing, yeah. but yeah. we will need to when we do scale up. And so it will be a shift. Um, once I kind of maybe have the volume going, there will be more money available for marketing and then I will be spending it in different ways. I think probably access to capital or cash flow management is probably always a problem for every business. You know, there are always weird things that come out of the blue that you don't anticipate or haven't planned for or didn't even think about. And so you just never really know. And so you always really need to have a cushion, yeah. but how can you have a cushion when you got to pay the bills? So it's just that kind of like snake eating its tail sort of thing. But for small companies, access to capital, I think is, is just, it's a, it's a big issue. And so uh, for me right now, I'm really kind of trying to polish my business plan so that when I do go to the bank, I can say, you know, Hey, here are the great things that are on the horizon for Daddy Sam's. Here's why you're going to get your money back. Because I think, you know, mm. one of the main things that the banks want, they'll say, and they do, they want you to succeed, but they want you to succeed because they want to get their money back. I mean, yeah. nobody wants to loan somebody money and then not get it back, right? So when you come up with a business plan or a proposal, you really need to kind of say, or, you know, my, my, my conversations have been like, here's what I'm doing. Here are the yeah. reasons I'm doing it. And here's why this is good for my company. And here's why if you loan me this money to do A, B, and C, you will get your money back with interest. So you're really kind of trying to 
accomplish things on two fronts, right? Like I'm trying to scale Daddy Sam's and create a situation where I can produce more inventory at a lower cost. Yeah. I need more money to do that um, because, you know, the runs are more expensive, right? Because I'm producing more. And, you know, and so I'm also trying to say to the bank, but look, if I do this, then I can do this and then you will get your money back. So it, so it is kind of a nice way to think about the future when you do think about scaling up because like I am needing to think about it in terms of how does this look on the other side? Like, how does this look for the bank? How does this yep. look for the investor? Am I, am I giving the investor a good reason to invest in daddy Sam's? You know, I'm excited yep. about daddy Sam's, but you know, that person may not really, you know, share my enthusiasm or excitement, but may want to make an investment where they get a good return. So how do I make, you know, the plans for Daddy Sam's look good for the bank or the investor? Interesting. And what's been the toughest time you faced so far? Boy, the the glass shortage was really, really mm. tough. We had uh, supply chain issues were really difficult during the kind of what I guess like last April, May, June, July, really, really difficult time because there was plenty of demand. We could make sauce, but there was nothing to put it in. And that, mm. that was, that was brutal. What happened like with the glass shortage? So once the pandemic really took up kind of full force and restaurants closed down and people were grocery shopping a lot more and they were buying a lot more shelf stable products and it just really changed all the kind of conventional laws of supply and demand at the grocery yep. store level right yep. Yep. and so like if you think about you know all of the stuff that was being purchased and glass just uh mostly you know there's not a lot of glass that's produced in the united states a lot of it is produced you know all over the world uh and so but large so and then i think you know they were saying too that there were glass shortages because just the People were buying canning jars because they were like doing home canning. People mm. were buying tons of stuff that was shelf stable because they weren't going to restaurants and they were just like, you know, there was some hoarding going on, you know, people, there were the, the vaccine makers needed glass. And so there was just a lot of new demand, new and unexpected demand for glass. And so it was a situation where even even the places that sort of would warehouse like discontinued glass jars or you know maybe jars that just didn't sell as well they all got sold out so even the jars that were at you know overstock warehouses or glass resellers it was just really really hard to get to get jars and then after a while it was hard to get lids so and then also again you know it's one of those issues where i'm a small i'm a small company daddy sam's is a small company and so we didn't have the same buying power right like i couldn't say oh i'll buy eight hundred thousand jars right yeah. i mean then so those kinds of companies that had that kind of buying power were prioritized as they should be and then i had to learn a lot about it and try to source it and and just kind of feel the anguish over not being able to meet my customer demands as quickly as I wanted to. Well, that means I got to ship into my warehouse and I have to, you know, store it. And mm -hmm. there are real costs to storing inventory like that. So I don't try to store very much raw good inventory because it doesn't help with my cash flow, right? That's just an unconverted asset sitting there that I'm paying to store. I was just so sad to not be able to 
satisfy my customers because they've been, our fans have been amazing. The Daddy Sam's fans are something else. I mean, <laughs> they love Daddy Sam's and it's so exciting because barbecue is a passionate world. And so yeah. when you get fans, I mean, you want to do right by them. And I definitely want to do right by the Daddy Sam's fans. And it, it just crushed me when I couldn't get product out to the stores fast enough, you know, to meet customer demand. And it, it sounds like warehousing is like a non-trivial cost. Uh, can you share some numbers or some something to give context to why, you know, storing inventory, uh, not just buying the inventory, but actually storing it has ad additional special costs to it so that we can visualize a little more clearly? Yeah, right. So I would say it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely not a trivial cost. I have a warehouse and, you know, that's, you know, whatever it is, you know, so every month I'm paying rent mm. uh, to store product. And yet, you know, if I didn't do that, right, then I would have to be doing runs so much more often mm. to make sure I have product. So I will do a larger run, right? And then I will store the product to make to, to sort of help me with my inventory management right so when i get down to i think i have a, a number of like when i get down to about 1200 jars yeah. then i make sure that i've got a purchase order in to make more product right so yeah so it's it's always hard because you're you're, you're doing this constant balancing act of like well i gotta pay to store this product but if i don't store enough then i can't like get product out and I will have to maybe pay an additional or an expediting fee to get my product made. Right. And then maybe what happens when, you know, there are too many, you know, shipments happening all over, you know, and so there's, I can't yep. get a truck in time. So for me, I am happier to pay. I probably pay too much for warehousing, but it gives me some peace of mind. Right. So I, I can kind of go to the warehouse and sort of see, okay, great. Here's all the product I have. Whew, I have enough. And, you know, so, you know, you're sort of paying for like my warehouse, right? I don't know, like however big it is, right? Like it's only like half full right now. So I'm paying, I'm paying for 50% of storing nothing, right? But sometimes it's 100% full, right? And so I want to be able, so it's just, again, that kind of give and take. And so I'm probably going to be moving, I, you know, to a third party, I will be moving to a third party fulfillment center so i won't have to worry about warehousing quite as much and there's a completely yeah. so i'm paying for the entire space right now right and so when i move to a third party fulfillment that will be you know a set price per pallet per month so um, a different pricing structure and then i don't need to worry so much about paying for space that i'm not using which i'm definitely doing now uh, and so that will be that will be terrific and yet i will still need to have a warehouse so that i've kind of got some of my stuff for samples, some of my stuff for doing demos, some of my stuff for doing product shots or product development or, you know, advertising, you know, making sure that I've got some product that I can take pictures of. So, you know, I will always probably have a little warehouse space, but, but I am getting to the volume now where I can, again, give that part to somebody else with the expertise and where I am not paying for everything all at once. I'm going to be paying by the pallet. So, you know, it's not like I pay for, you know, so many square feet. I'm just paying like, oh, they've got five pallets right now. So it's X amount of dollars per pallet per month. Boom. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. Oh, thank you, Amon. This has been so much fun.